Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's show... We'll hear about a lively program that tells the stories of the notable names resting in the Hanover Green Cemetery. We'll hear from a para-snowboarder from Waymart who hopes to compete in the 2018 Paralympics. And we'll listen to medical professionals who recently spoke to a Lackawanna County crowd about the area's addiction epidemic. The oldest graveyard in Wyoming Valley will come alive this weekend for history buffs as Hanover Green Cemetery holds Heritage Day on Sunday, June the 4th. We recently met up with Jackie Kaiser, a member of the committee that plans the annual event. We started our tour of the cemetery at the historic meeting house, which still holds services every Sunday. Jackie explained why she's so interested in the cemetery's history. I've always liked history. I had a good history teacher in high school. I was always interested in history. My husband's family lived right across the street. His grandmother lived right across the street. I started going out with my Bob when I was 16 years old. So we would come across the street to the cemetery with his grandmother, and we'd water the flowers, and she'd tell us the stories about all the relatives and all about Hanover Green. So that's how I started to get interested in the cemetery. So then later on we became in our adult lives, we became more interested in the cemetery. We really have a vested interest in keeping it going since all of Bob's family, it seems, is buried here. We just think it's an historical item in in Luzerne County that should be preserved and people should come out and look at these graves and respect the people who came here and settled. It wasn't an easy life, but they did it and they built Wilkes-Barre and uh, it's something that we could be proud of. We're standing right now in front of the meeting house, which is in the cemetery. And there were meeting houses throughout northeastern Pennsylvania. We know there was one on Public Square that's not there anymore, and we know that you have yours here, and it's a really beautiful building. Can you talk a little bit about the meeting house? Well, when the settlers first came here, and they came here from Connecticut, each tract of land, they had to dedicate so many acres of common ground for a meeting house and uh, a cemetery. So every tract, oh, and a school, too. So every tract of land would have these three items in it. So the meeting house was meeting house slash church. And uh, there were several attempts in Hanover Green to erect a, a church. It would start, the people would move, the Scots would come. They were here for a while. Uh, they started their church and then they moved on. Then somebody else would come and they'd get half built and then they moved on. So finally, in 1825, this building was built and it caught on and it stayed. It's non-denominational, still has a service every Sunday. They have Sunday school and a service. And I believe it to be the oldest continuous church going in Luzerne County. 
and it's very unique in the way it was built. If you could see the pews, you have to sit up perfectly straight and pay attention. There was no slouching. If you look at the ceiling, you'll see how it's vaulted. That was for sound connection. Don't forget, no microphones back then. Also the pulpit. If you look above the pulpit, there's a sounding board. And you could see uh, the fancy uh, woodwork going around the second story. You could see the original oil lamps and the thumb latches. Everything in the church is basically original. Of course, they had to add heat and electricity. But other than that, it's the same as they built it in 1825. And we're proud to say it's still going. Kaiser talks about her interest in the cemetery, those buried there, and their fortitude during the early settling of Wyoming Valley. Why do you enjoy this so much? Because I know you really get into this. I just think all these stories are so interesting. Uh, You walk through a cemetery and you look at the stones and you wonder, who was that guy? What did he do? Everybody has a story, even if it just seems very mundane, like Mrs. Lyons, who used to bake bread in her outdoor oven and give it to the Indians. She was doing that, and they befriended her. One day, they put a big black X on her house, and she said, what's that for? Because we like you. We like you a lot. We don't want anything to happen to you. She told her husband, next thing you know, they're packing up the wagons, and they're heading off to Sunbury. Right after that, it was the Wyoming Massacre, and he did not want to take a chance. So like I said, they buried their pewter, drove the cattle off to the swamp in hopes of finding them later, and took off. Did they come back? Yes, they did, and they're buried here. Did they find their cattle and their pewter? Uh, They probably found the pewter, the cattle. I'm sure the Indians had a good roast with that. When you have the, the tour this time around, what's your focus? My focus this year, um, we're going to have um, a ceremony, a, le- a wreath laying over at the Spanish-American plot. These are all veterans from the Spanish-American War, and we thought it was fitting this year that they should have a wreath over by them. So they're going to be our wreath lighting, but we also have a very nice young woman. Her name is Maria Scavone, and she's going to portray Samantha Mill. And we also have another one, nice uh, woman, Lorraine Smith, and she's going to portray the wife of Abraham Storms, who had the first silk mill in Nanticoke. This, along with our regular players, I think will make up a nice program. When we talk about, well, you have two people here whose whose lives are are pretty much from Nanticoke. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Samantha Milf? We'll just start there. Well, her father was in the Revolutionary War. And as you can see, her obelisk is the tallest in the cemetery, and she did want it like that. And her father was in the Revolutionary War. He acquired a large tract of land. He was granted a large tract of land, and he farmed that for a while. And then he started leasing it out to the coal companies. So he made a tidy sum of money with that. But um, he wasn't stingy or greedy. They donated money to make a meeting house on the main street in Nanticoke and to other different projects, and they passed that on to Samantha. Samantha grew up. She went to Moravian College. She was the valedictorian. So when she came back here, she so loved Nanticoke that she carried on in her father's tradition. If there was a a young person who wanted to go to college, she would help him out with that. If there was any other good public works going on in Anacoke, she would give money to it. She, when she passed away, she left money for the Anacoke Public Library. 
and she also left money uh, to keep her house going. She wanted her house exactly as it was. She wanted people to be uh, reminded of how people used to live, not to forget that this is how we lived. She was very, very nice. In her uh, final years, she didn't live in Nanticoke anymore. She was old and alone. So she went and took up an apartment in the Sterling Hotel. But uh, every day, her driver would bring her to Nanny Coke, and she would drive around and people would wave to Miss Samantha. The other woman that you mentioned, tell me her story. Uh, well, Mrs. Abraham Storm, her husband started the first silk mill in Nanny Coke, and it was quite a good enterprise. But tragedy struck, it burned to the ground, and it left several hundred people out of work. And at that time, uh, a lot of the workers were women and children. Children at that time worked up to 50 hours a week. So that's part of her story. Oh, and we can't forget uh, Charlie Herring. Herring, who is going to be in our chapel giving uh, his talk, The Last Survivor of the GAR. That one is very, very good. It's very, um, it really gets you in the heart. That's a very good, good program he puts on also. One of Jackie Kaiser's favorite stories of the Hanover Green Cemetery includes Captain Peleg Burrett and his tenacious wife, Debbie. This is Peleg Burrett. He was a little bit too old to fight when the trouble happened up at 44. He was off trying to get help. Well, help never came. Well, actually it came, but it came too late. And uh, he left his wife, Debbie, here. Now she, to me, is the hero. She was left here with the women, with the other women, the kids, the old guys. Her daughter had a little tiny baby and her husband, Cyprian Hibbert, was up at the battle. He ended up getting killed, so she became a widow with, I think the baby was something like six weeks old. So here's Debbie down here, right? Now what do I do? All these settlers are coming down from 44th saying, get the heck out and get out now. They're, the Indians, there's no control in them. They're burning everything to the ground. Leave. So they were going down on boats down the river to safety. And she thought, well, okay, that sounds like a good pun. We'll, we'll see if we could jump on some of these rafts. So she got a satchel together, of course, with all the important papers that can never be replaced. You know, the deeds, the birth certificates, the marriage licenses, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, why wouldn't you throw at strangers, you know? So she gives it to uh, a guy, some people on a raft, and says, look, it, I'm going to meet you down there. Tell me where you're going. I think they were going down to... Uh, like down to Sunbury. I'll catch up with you, take care of my stuff. She never saw it again. But <laughs> then she decided, probably because I'm thinking, probably because she had a large, she had a group of people and she wouldn't be able to get everybody down the river. So she decided, well, we're gonna hike it out of here. So she had a horse. So she packed up the horse with a sack of flour and a tin cup. Okay, right? And she rounded everybody up, and, they, and she says, we have to march out of here, and we have to do it now. So they started going. They went on the warrior's path. Then they went through the shades of death. And believe me, from what I read, that really is the shades of death. So many people were lost in the wilderness up there, hundreds of them. They, they died up there. Um, she took her people, and it was, like, so sad. The little kids, the mothers, and of course the mothers, you know, they never get any rest. They're trying to keep everybody going in the daytime, and then at night they would cut boughs off the pine trees and fan the kids with them so they could get some sleep so they wouldn't be bitten up by mosquitoes. 
and uh, the older guys that didn't go up there to fight, they would bring up the rear and they'd have a switch and they'd use it on the kids if the kids laid down to keep them going because you had to keep going. And all she had was that sack of flour. So every night they'd make a little fire, she'd get a flat stone and she'd make a flatbread. I guess like a pita, that kind of thing. And that's all they had to eat plus if they could forage for any huckleberries, things like that. But they finally made it to civilization. And from uh, there, she, you know, that was up into the, I think Allentown Easton area, up around there. From there she made it to Connecticut. Her husband came back, finds everything burned to the ground in toast, right? And could you imagine what he thought coming back, coming down this mountain? All he sees is smoke coming up from the valley. Could you imagine what he was thinking? Where's his son-in-law? Where's his daughter? Where's the granddaughter? Like, what happened, you know? So he went to, and they finally met up in Connecticut, and then they came back here picked themselves up, started to farm all over again. And here's where they rest. The spirit of the people in that back in the day, it's really remarkable, isn't it? I'll tell you what, they weren't slackers. You know what? There was like no laying down, just work. This is it. We have to work. We have to chop out our lives here. This is what we have to deal with. This is what we were given. And we're going to make something out of it one way or the other. Do you think they stayed because they had a lot of land? What was their motivation not to stay in Connecticut? Now, think about this. Connecticut was getting too crowded in like the 1700s. Too crowded, they should see it today. That's what they thought. They're going to come down here and settle. And this valley was perfect. In fact, do you know what Wyoming means? It's a great big long Indian word that the settlers kept chopping off, chopping off, chopping off. So they finally settled with Wyoming. But the Indian word meant fertile valley. Jackie tells the story of the true grit of Mary Robbins. Another pioneer woman. She was home up here on the mountain with the kids. A couple of the kids were sick, came down with something. Of course, the husband has to go off hunting. You know, why not, right? So he goes off hunting. She's alone with the kids. So she gets up in the middle of the night. She wants to check on the kids. She's going to get up and she's going to light a ca uh, candle to see, to see around the cabin, right? She puts her foot down out of bed. Guess what happens? She's bit with a rattlesnake. Oh, so she puts her other foot down. Guess what happens? Bit with a rattlesnake. She lights the candle, gets a broom, beats the snake to death, gets one of the older kids to go get the doctor, bring him up here. He tends to her, and she lived to be in her 80s. Tell me that's not one tough woman. One of the most famous graves in the Hanover Cemetery belongs to a man who not only protected the life of George Washington, but also fought in the Battle of Wyoming. Oh, Rufus Bennett. Well, he was a lifeguard for George Washington. Now, a lifeguard, there was, there was a lot of lifeguards. It wasn't like he was just the only one. It was, I'm thinking kind of like our Secret Service. And Washington had a strict standard that you had to meet before you could become a lifeguard. Well, Rufus Bennett met these standards. So he was here on leave from the Army when the Wyoming Massacre was going on. So he went up there, and he was fighting and doing, doing his best. But something happened that, uh, well, we have to go over to Richard Inman now to tell you the rest of the story. Now here's Richard's story that ties in with Rufus Bennett. Rufus Bennett 
he's fighting the Indians, but they're chasing him. Two of them are chasing him, and he was being chased by two Indians. He was trying to grab onto the tail of a horse of a rider that was going by to hike himself up to get out of there. Well, good old Richard Inman, he's lying in a ditch up there. Bennett runs by him, he says, Inman, is your rifle loaded? He says, yes, then shoot this Indian. He shoots him. The other one runs off. Rufus comes back, Inman comes back. But you know what? The Indians, they never forget. That winter, his younger brother thought he heard turkeys outside the cabin. He takes his gun and he goes out. It wasn't turkeys. The family found his uh, scalped and mutilated body in the spring. Heritage Day at the Hanover Green Cemetery will be held on Sunday, June the 4th from 1230 to 4. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. A Team USA para-athlete and world champion snowboarder from our region has his eyes set on competing in the 2018 Paralympics, set for March in South Korea. Mike Miner of Waymart embraced this sport at a young age. He also coaches young people with disabilities, and his upper limb amputation is a mere footnote of his story. Miner will be at Montage Mountain Resort on Sunday, June the 4th from 1 to 5 p.m. for a fundraiser to defray the costs of his training and travel. We had the chance to talk to him this week about his story, future goals, and what it's like to look down from the top of the Alps while strapped to a snowboard. I'm actually originally from Waymart, born and raised, and lived here for about 23 years, I think it was, before I headed out west to pursue my uh, dream of trying to become a professional snowboarder. Tell me a little bit bit about your interest in this. I know you were very, very, very young when, when this all started. Um, yes, I, um, I started at about two and a half skiing and uh, I skied from two and a half until seven. And then I started snowboarding at seven when I seen what a snowboard was on the mountain and kind of just took off from there. And when you got into this in the first place, did did your parents push you towards this or or did you push them? Uh, no, it was always me pushing, always. Um, it was just a recreational thing on the weekends that we did with family and friends and uh, it just kind of grew on me and I found a special spot for it in my life. When you first recall seeing this snowboarding do you remember it at all? Do you remember seeing somebody and saying, I want to do that? Or how do you re- recall this in your mind? I, I didn't. I just seen somebody on a snowboard. Um, they were actually like just pushing across a flat on a slope. So nothing really even exciting. And I just, I just seen them on it. And I just knew for whatever reason, that was something I wanted to do. It, it sparked my attention from the get go. And, and then I kind of seen some guys after that at the mountain, you know, hitting jumps and whatnot. So that kind of directed me into it even more. And I I just kind of grew on it. I understand that since you were born, you were an upper limb amputee. Is that correct? Uh, yes. It Can was you talk a little bit about that? Um, so, uh, yeah, they don't really know why. Um, I was just born without my arm. Uh, amniotic band syndrome, maybe, or different, different theories. Yeah, I just kind of rocked it my whole life and uh, never let it stop me. Wrestling, soccer, skateboarding, motocross, quads, anything I can get my hands on. That's an amazing thing, though, when I think about it. I mean, all the things that you just named, I would think something would probably stop you from doing that. But in your mind, I guess it's a little bit different than what I perceive, right? No, yeah, not at all. I I don't like to be stopped or held back with anything. Talk about when you decided that you wanted to make this more than a hobby for yourself. Um, I didn't really know the direction of 
where I was going, but I knew it was something bigger than just a regular job. And at the time, I was skateboarding, so I thought it was that. And uh, I really started to pursue um, down that route and uh, was doing really well with it, but then kind of woke up one day and didn't really want to do it anymore for whatever reason and uh, was kind of pushing and demanding too much for myself. So um, I was just kind of living my life and working at the ski mountain, and uh, my boss suggested that I move west and uh, check it out. And he was like, you're young, you know, you don't really have a reason to just stay here. So go go west and see see the mountains out there and do a little riding. So I went out west and um, kind of met these uh, these guys with adaptive action sports and uh, they were trying to get me to race for a little bit and I wasn't really about it and then finally in the end they were like hey do you want to make money to snowboard so I was like all right let's see what this is about and uh, went to my first race took two golds and made the U.S. team right after that and it's kind of just been history ever since. Wait in your first race? Yep. How amazed were they at that? Um, uh, Yeah they were pretty amazed they said uh, you got to go win two gold medals if you want to be on the U.S. team. So uh, I went and won two gold medals. And just like that? <clears throat> yeah, just like that. That's pretty amazing. Tell me a little bit about the people with adaptive action sports. Who are they and what kind of organization do they have that drew you to them? Uh, Daniel Gale and Amy Purdy are um, the founders of Adaptive Action Sports, and they founded this just for kids with disabilities to be able to venture down these sports, like I was saying, skateboarding, um, motocross, any any action sports, really, anything that um, normally you wouldn't be able to uh, look at doing or or be able to do, they kind of specialize in helping you figure out how you could do it. So uh, I got linked up with them, and... Uh, you know, kind of told them this is what I like to do. Um, I like to get crazy on skateboards and snowboards. So let's, you know, let's, let's talk to Red Bull or, or whoever and get things going. Talk to me a little bit about your role in talking to kids. To me, you're much younger. You're in your mid-20s, right? I'm 27 in July. Oh, so. then you're, you're, you're an old man, but you're not really <laughs> an old man. But when you when you talk to kids about what's possible do you do it more by talking or demonstrating, or how do you work? I see you're a coach and you um, do work with kids. Yeah, pretty much everything um, with me is unscripted. It's right from the heart, and uh, I don't really put any practice behind anything. I didn't really practice what I was going to say today. I just kind of came and I lay everything out, and uh, what you see is what you get with me. And uh, working with the kids is great, and children are our future in anything that we do, um, whether it be you know snowboarding or any other sport or anything in the world, if we don't tend to the, the youth, what what's the future of whatever we have? What can you think about when you're working with kids that you can tell me about a, a story about maybe one of the kids that you worked with and maybe you saw something in that young person that they didn't see in themselves? Just had so many great experiences with kids um, through the camps that we've done and whatnot. Um, it's just really allowing them to see their full potential is really what I like to do and, and allowing them to understand that, you know, they're capable of doing whatever they want to do. Um, it's just about how determined they are to do it. Anybody following in your footsteps yet? Um, yeah, I've got a couple couple young ones that are constantly messaging me, and uh, it's great. It's, it's nice to know that you can have an impact like that on someone's life. What kind of advice do you give to parents who have a child who may have a disability, how do you talk to them about helping them to see the future? Maybe it is through your role modeling, but what do you say as advice to parents who maybe are just listening and they, they haven't seen you in action? Um, yeah, that's great. Actually, parents 
with kids with disabilities or without disabilities. Um, this is, it's just encourage your children to do whatever they like. Like if if they're into it, support it because whatever they do in their future is going to be their job. And why not love what they do? And it makes it a lot easier to do your job every day, and it makes you a lot more passionate in the end about what you do. You said you you went out west to pursue this a little bit more. What was it like seeing? those mountains, which I guess are a little bit different than what we have here. And then, of course, that's not where you stopped because you've traveled the world to do this, right? Uh, Yes. So within two years, I've seen 11 countries. It'll be 14 in the next two months. And um, yeah, I went from here to the Rocky Mountains and started snowboarding there, which they're, yeah, four to five times the size of our mountains here. And then, uh, you know, was able to see all the different ranges of the Alps from Italy to Austria and and many more and did some snowboarding in Spain. And now this past year we did some snowboarding in South Korea. So that was very interesting. Describe what that's like for people who don't snowboard. Do you ever get overwhelmed at what you see? I mean, from going to here to out to the West, big mountains, and then you're all over the world, but they're all different, right? So how do you... How do you handle that when you think, is this beyond my capabilities? Um, I never really get that um, thought in my mind pretty much <laughs> when I'm at the top of the mountain. I'm looking down like this is going to be really fun. Austria was the first that I was in one of those scenarios, and um, it had snowed probably the first week we got there for the first three days, and it finally broke out, and we got to go ride some backcountry, and I was a the top of the Alps and looking down and some crevasses and uh, got that thought for just a split second. And then I said, you know what, how many people get to be here in this spot that you're in right now? You have one shot at this and you might as well enjoy it. And I dropped that cliff and it was probably the most epic moment I've had out in Europe to date. When you see yourself on video, I guess you would. What are you thinking when you see that guy who is kind of a daredevil? What is that like for you? It's it's kind of just normal. Um, I'm used to watching video after video of of this. Now it's pretty much to the point where that's how I'm um, training anymore. Partially, I um, will train and then I have to dissect my video down to slow mo because I can't um, see what I'm doing at regular speeds and it's getting such fine movements um, in my training that I have to break it down. Like, very, very fine. Have you ever gotten hurt doing this? Yes. uh, My injury list is probably longer than my accomplishment list. It's really long. (laughs) What what is a moment or or an injury that you got where maybe you had to call your parents or or your coach and say, Um, X Games. Yeah. Yeah, X Games last year was my second race of my professional career. And I got hurt uh, second run of the first day of practice. I uh, didn't make it over a 65-foot gap jump and uh, blew my knee out. And my parents were actually on the plane out west to come watch me compete. And uh, they got off the plane to a phone call that I was um, down in the med tent and I wouldn't be riding. And uh, so they spent the rest of their vacation uh, just tending to my injuries and uh, me just being kind of off the snowboard and not able to ride. And uh, I look at those points as very crucial, though, is is who your team is around you and and your mindset in those times that you're down because a lot of people get very just 
um, just in a dark place and you have a lot of downtime, you're injured, you're not doing what you love, you're away from it all, you're not working out, you're not feeling good about yourself. So um, it gets hard, you know, to, to stay, stay on the right mind frame and stay at the end goal. How long did it take you to bounce back from that? That one was a month and a half, and I um, got back on the plane, went to Canada, and uh, got a concussion in my first day of practice back and the next uh, next set around. So I was out for another week, and uh, yeah, it was rough. It was, a, it was a really mental game last year, and it started to affect my performance, and uh, it, it just it shows that, you know, if you're not in – in the right place in all sets of life that you won't be able to perform at your, your best. So what is your biggest motivator in those moments where they are a little bit dark and you do have some questions about the future? Um, I do what's called a reset, and uh, you try to take yourself away from everything that's negative and pulling you down and just remind yourself of everything that you have that's good, everything that you have that has gotten you this far and you also try to tell yourself that even though this is a negative time, you are learning something from it. There's always learning process. And as bad as some situations might stink, there's something learned out of it in the end. You're in a very exciting part of your career right now because you are getting ready for something very, very big next year, correct? And I'm sure there's other things along the way, but next year is a huge, huge year for you, right? Yes, yes. This year is uh, is is the year uh, as everyone would put it you know it's we're eight months out of the games and uh, it's getting down to grind time Uh, these next world cups will be the defining moment of whether I'm named to the Olympic team or not and um, yeah it's 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 down to the wire talk about what happens before the Paralympics next year what what has to happen for you to qualify um, we haven't gotten the stipulations yet. Um, we should find out here in the next uh, month or so. But um, I'm guessing it will be along the lines of finishing a top percentage of your races of World Cups throughout the season or being at a certain um, level in points by the time of the games. I'm not really sure. It could be a, a multitude of different things. Are you on a schedule right now of events that you can talk about? Uh, I am. I am actually leaving in um, on June 5th for the Olympic Training Center. We have to go there for, I think it's four days. I come home on the 8th, and then I fly back out on the 11th to go to Oregon to do a snowboard camp with the U.S. team. Then I'm home for um, the 21st until July 2nd. I fly to Europe for two weeks, and then I'm home for about three weeks, and then I fly back to uh, New Zealand for a World Cup there in August. And in this interim is when it's a make it or break it, right? So this is very important for you, this little stretch, right? Uh, This stretch is... um, is training all for that uh, New Zealand race will be the first World Cup we have of the of the Olympic year. That'll kind of kick it off, and then um, and then yeah, once that goes, we'll be right back out to Europe after that, and and the races will start rolling in. And before I know it, it'll be the games have come past. <laughs> okay, and the Paralympics. Have you been in them before? I have not. This will be my first time, and it will be the first time that the arm um, upper limb category gets to represent um, their spot in snowboarding. So it will be our first debut um, Olympics or Paralympics. Obviously, this takes a lot of dedication, and it takes some fundraising, right? Absolutely. Um, Wouldn't be here without the fundraising. I don't know a single athlete that would be able to do it without fundraising. Uh, Competing at a a world-class level is not, not cheap. 
at all. And though the team funds some of our things like travel and hotels, we are um, are responsible for paying for food, bag fees, um, rental cars. If we were to go on trips on our own for training, which happens a lot, this Europe trip that I'm going to in July will be my own funded training um, trip. So, yeah, that will be separate. You have an event that's coming up on Sunday. I do. I have an event at Montage Mountain on Sunday. And we are having a fundraiser there, so anyone that wants to come by and have a good time, it'll be great. And have some live music and good food, and I'll be around signing autographs and taking pictures. Do you have any kind of contact with Stephanie Jallen? Um, I know Stephanie. Yeah, me and Stephanie are um, pretty good friends, um, though we don't get to see each other much. Um, she's with the skiing program. I'm with the snowboarding, so we're kind of on separate training regiments. I just saw her... I want to say it was about a month and a half ago in Vail. We did a fundraiser for the U.S. team, and we all come together then. So we get to see all the skiers, and I got to see them in Korea too. So some events we get to – we'll get lucky, and we'll all be at the events together. But uh, for the most part, they travel on a complete different schedule than we do. Well, it's so cool that both of you are from northeastern Pennsylvania. I think we're kind of proud of that. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's cool to uh, kind of put that on the map, you know. That's Mike Miner. Team USA World Champion para snowboarder from Waymart. You can learn more about him on his Facebook, Friends of Mike Miner. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Medical professionals are recognizing that sometimes addiction happens after a visit to the emergency department doctor's office, dentist, or following routine surgery. A panel discussion at Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine entitled Hashtag Had Enough brought together community leaders, law enforcement, physicians, and a community member who described her descent into addiction. The discussion was precluded by a talk about opiates, which are any sedative narcotic containing any opium or derivatives, including morphine, heroin, codeine, or methadone. Opioids are synthetic drugs like hydrocodone or oxycodone. Morphine was discovered in the early 1800s. By 1853, the hypodermic needle became the vehicle for delivery. In 1875, a chemist at Bayer Pharmaceuticals discovered heroin, which was sold legally. Until 1920, Bayer made a ton of this drug a year, and it was used for the treatment of pneumonia, cough, and even colic in infants. Nowadays, medical professionals are increasingly alarmed at the amount of addiction and overdose deaths because of these drugs. We spoke to Dr. Andy Mendenhall, Regional Medical Director for Clean Slate Treatment Centers, about his opinions on the epidemic. Well, there's good evidence that, unfortunately, medical schools in general have not been providing as much education as would be preferred for a disease state that affects one in four American families right now. That said, we're moving the ball in the right direction. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, the American Academy of Family Medicine, and several other medical entities that provide clinical education to to providers and clinicians are really prioritizing developing a deeper understanding of the disease of addiction, both because of the opioid epidemic, but also uh, the most common issues being alcohol and nicotine pursuant to the the greater population as a whole. The stigma, that really seems to be a huge obstacle. I mean, for a lot of I guess, recovery in the past, 
it is a program of anonymity. Would there be any kind of benefit to recovering in public for people? Great question. There's a phenomenal video that people can find on the internet called The Anonymous People. And there has been a big movement among parts of the recovery community to move outside of uh, the 12 steps and the 12 traditions in a way that I think can really serve to break down a lot of, of the stigma. That said, I think that we're still struggling against the perception that um, this is all about choice and not about the science, which is that this is a biological disease state that is treatable, that uh, people can achieve sustained recovery. And um, we should ideally move towards making the disease of addiction really something that's seen akin to diabetes, akin to high blood pressure. Um, I think it's just it's difficult because when when people are active in their disease, they behave in ways that it's very easy for people to, to be judgmental regarding. Often we hear people say to us, oh, come on, it's a, a choice in the first place. You know, it's very interesting. I think that people make choices uh, to take risks and experiment with substances. But when we're really talking about the disease of addiction and we do a deep dive, we realize that the prevalence of adverse childhood events early childhood trauma, depression, anxiety, or co-occurring mental health issues really lead most people who find themselves um, suffering from a severe substance use disorder reporting that they felt a pressure to feel different. They never really ever felt normal to begin with. And that background pressure of not feeling well when they were clean and sober as a young, as a young person oftentimes seems to be a common narrative to why people begin the process of, of experimenting with substances, which is really driving that concept of using in order to feel different, using in order to feel less bad. Dr. Perry Meadows is the medical director for government programs of the Geisinger Health Plan. He recently started speaking publicly about how the opioid crisis is personal to him and his family. I have a stepson who has been addicted to opiates since he was age 21. He had a work-related injury, uh, went to the doctor, started out with, uh, you know, Tylenol, Advil, moved his way up through opiates until he was on fentanyl patches. At that point, he aspirated, took the medication out of the fentanyl patch and injected it into his vein, and he was found in the hallway of our home uh, unresponsive, not breathing. I did CPR on him, and he is still alive today, but he is um, still addicted to heroin, uh, still gets, some, someone has to use Narcan on him once or twice a week now, from what we understand. We don't, we don't hear from him often because uh, he doesn't want anything to do with us at this point. Do you talk about this in the medical community with your colleagues? It does create a lot of empathy. Did people say to you, wow, you know, we've really got to do something about this situation? You know, it's, it's interesting. I wouldn't talk about this for a long time because of the stigma. I had an irrational fear of what would people think. And that continued for years until last September when I was asked to testify at a public hearing 
And once I testified at the public hearing, I haven't been able to shut up since. So do people know? Yes. I talk about it a lot, but it, it gets people's attention because you know, it's not just one group of people or another. This disease doesn't discriminate. It can affect anyone, regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, whether you're employed, unemployed. It, it, there's no, no discrimination with this disease. Do you believe that taking a public stand, that if more people do, take a public stand and they talk about their own problems, their family problems, etc. That will be an empowering experience because tonight stigma was a really big topic here at this. Would that be a new way to approach this is through being open and honest about what are perceived sometimes as very private family problems? I think so. I mean, it's been empowering for me just to, just to talk about it and realize that other people have the same issues, have the same concerns that I do. The stigma affects not only the individual with the disease, but their family and their friends. And I know it personally from the family side, and I see it in my children. My 23-year-old son saw me doing CPR, and he had issues for the longest time. My 21-year-old daughter wants absolutely nothing to do with her half-brother. And my 12-year-old daughter doesn't even know who he is. It's, it's been devastating for the kids. Tonight, this presentation talked about the medical community as well. And some of the discussion that happened here tonight was about a lack of training that physicians have regarding addiction. Talk about your own training. Did you know that much in the beginning, or how did you learn? Was it baptism by fire? You know, Dr. Mendenhall mentioned that he got uh, 33 hours of training in his seven years. He got 33 more hours than I did. I received no training whatsoever in uh, medical school or residency in addiction. I, I learned it by making mistakes. I learned it by practicing and treating pain as the fifth vital sign, and believing what I was taught was that patients had a right to be pain-free. Well, over the years I found out that that wasn't quite correct. And so I modified my practice over time until in the end, if it wasn't broken or wasn't cut off, you didn't get a pain pill. When was the first time you remember having a moment where you thought that you were going down the wrong path as physicians in general and did you talk to anybody about it? It was in 1990 when I was actually working in a small ER and one of my patients came in with an overdose and it was an overdose on prescription pain pills. Now he, he had prescription pain pills from multiple doctors but one of the doctors he had received prescriptions from was myself. And that was, a, that was an eye-opening experience for me. Do you believe that in this arena today, these young physicians that are learning here at Geisinger's Medical College in, in Scranton, do you believe that they're receiving, from, from what you know, good training in this realm? I believe that the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine is doing a much better job. Dean Scheinman is dedicated to teaching young physicians the right way. You know, not, not only with addiction, but... I mean, I'm, I'm just amazed 
at the program they have here. Through the hospital system, where do you think that you can go in the future? I heard someone, I don't know who it was, say tonight that perhaps there's a plateau moment here now where things are going to start to level out a little bit because of the awareness of this problem, not in every state in the country, but a lot on the East Coast and then in some other states as well. So do you believe that? No. Unfortunately, I don't believe that. Uh, if you talk to investigators uh, with various government agencies. Um, are we seeing a plateau with prescription medication as physicians become more educated and more aware of prescribing? I, I'd say that's an accurate statement. But in terms of other medications like fentanyl and heroin, um, I don't see a plateau. I mean, fentanyl, for example, uh, is a drug that's much more potent than morphine. There's another medication called carfentanil that's an elephant tranquilizer. Two milligrams can drop a 2,000 pound elephant. So that's a much more potent drug and the chemists that are producing these medications are, have gotten so creative that there are probably a dozen fentanyl type compounds out where they just change one molecule in the fentanyl and some of these drugs aren't even illegal yet because the DEA hasn't, quite, hasn't caught up with them and classified them as illegal. So some of the fentanyls that are flowing in from out of the country aren't classified as illegal until law enforcement catches up with them and they add them to the list. In terms of what else we heard tonight was that people go in and out of treatment. There's you know 28 days, 30 days in, and then they're out, and then they're in, and then they're out. Is there any conventional wisdom to a longer stay in treatment facilities and will health care providers embrace that? That's, that's an interesting question. Each person with opiate use disorder or substance use disorder needs an individualized treatment plan. There are people that do well with an outpatient program, an intensive outpatient program, a 30-day program, and then there are people like my stepson who didn't do well with a 180-day program. It depends on the person. So. Would I like to see the ability to have longer stays? Yes. One of the problems we have with longer stays is a lack of treatment facilities. There's a distinct lack of beds, not only in the Commonwealth, but across the country. If you had you know, a prediction to make, what do you think might, might change this addiction issue in the country, whether it's alcoholism, drugs, whatever? What, what is, in your opinion, something that could change this in the future? Well, there are a couple of things. One thing is we have to educate. We have to educate. That's the reason we were here tonight, was to educate and inform. But the other thing is, and it's the thing that I deal with even now, is the stigma. We have to remove the stigma from this disease. I mean, I think back to when I was first in training uh, with HIV. First HIV case in Huntington, West Virginia. I, along with the chief resident, were the only people that would go in the, go in the room with this uh, gentleman. Uh, there was a fear, and now the stigma is not associated with HIV, but what I see now with opiate use disorder is the same thing I saw 30 years ago. And we have to attack the stigma. People aren't going to seek help because of the stigma. They're not going to talk about it because of the stigma. I mean, I didn't talk about it until Gary Tennis asked me to testify, and it took me weeks to tell him yes because I was afraid to talk about it. And if I'm afraid to talk about it, 
I can't imagine what other people go through. It's, it's heartbreaking for families. It's heartbreaking for uh, the folks that have this. They have to have the freedom and the ability to talk about it, to reach out to somebody, to get the help that they want and that they need. That's Dr. Perry Meadows, Medical Director for Government Programs, Geisinger Health Plan, a speaker at the recent Hashtag Had Enough panel discussion held at Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine in Scranton. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.